Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation is... Move! Get out of there! George, move! Dad! Move, Dad! Move, Dad! Get out! Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater. And I'm Patrick Green. And this is actually the second attempt at starting this episode. The first attempt... I think it's the 10th attempt. This is the 12th attempt. The first the 12th 12 attempt. were disrupted by a an actual fire breaking out in the kitchen yes. behind Jamie's head right now. I'm at my friend's house in the high desert in California, in the Mojave Desert, and he burned dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so this but anything could like, happen, guys. Anything My friend happen Eric, tonight. who's right here, is one of the most amazing people that I never met. And he is an incredible guy. And uh, it's always... He's bowing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm up here in the desert. And uh, yeah, this is a week from now. Patrick and I will be hanging out together, getting drunk. Getting drunk. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe uh, that after and, all this time, that is only a week away. I know, man. Uh, after, after all of it. It's That's crazy. crazy. Well, when people hear this, it's going to have already happened. So, you know. Hopefully it yeah. doesn't suck. We'll see. But we have our big yeah. Blade Runner we event coming each up. other by the end. We're not friends. <laughs> well, we're sharing Podcast a house, so I hope banned. we don't. Um, <laughs> band broke up. No, I'm so well, fucking excited. Tonight, we are here to discuss the character of Ripley in the context of Alien as much as we can. We felt like we have covered Ripley before. I was under the impression that we hadn't. Sorry, everyone. But I made a great video <laughs> about it anyways. Um, <laughs> but we really wanted to talk about Ripley in the context of Alien when we first sort of discovered because really she is a part of an ensemble cast. No one's the star of that film until the very end. I wouldn't even say the star, but no one's the lead. Everyone is the lead. Everyone is relatively equal. However, I would say Ripley sort of begins to stand out as time goes on. But uh, I, I'm interested, Patrick, in because Alien is your first, the first entry into the series for you. What were your first impressions of Ripley? Uh, that she reminded me of my mom, and that still to this day is is just an inescapable thing for me when I when I see Ripley. Partly because you know my mom was my hero as a kid, and she was such a, an amazing, you know, strong um, person in my life, and she still is to this day, just a huge inspiration for a lot of you know where I draw my creativity from and my resilience from. But also because visually, she just kind of looks a little bit like Sigourney Weaver. So as a kid, she had like the black curly hair and things, and you know, um, it was weird. You know, I, I saw Alien when I was young enough that the the line between film and reality was even a little bit blurrier I think you know so for me I definitely um, just just uh, attached to her as a mother figure and um, and I'm sure that that informs part of why she's maintained that level of importance for me other than the fact that I've just fallen so madly in love with these movies part of it is that she represents something that um, very few other characters do uh, for so many of us you know it's it's not a coincidence that so many of us call her our space mom that that's like a term you know that just floats around in fandom Uh, she she has that impact on us. She has that importance to us. She, uh, I think for many reasons, not the least of which is that her character has never relied on romantic attachments, has been able to exist as a more full 
uh, character than, you know, a lot of other, especially female characters that were written around that time period. And since, you know, she really exists just as a character on her own terms. And I think because of that, um, we're able to focus on aspects of her that go beyond um, things that we might otherwise focus on of having a, you know, a female protagonist in an action movie or something. We can look at her as a really full character um, who is um, very personally special, I think. What about you? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Her character, certainly, again, as you know and everyone knows, my first entry into the series was Aliens. And so when I met Ripley, she was the star of the film. She was waking up after 57 years being out, you know, on her own in the narcissist. You know, all of that backstory that I didn't know was with her. And so when I met her again for the first time in Alien, she wasn't that character. She was a part of an ensemble. She was a part of a cast that everyone brought something very important to the to the table. She was first officer. You know, she was in Dallas was the captain. You have Parker and Lambert and Ash and Brett and anyone else? Kane. Um, and. So when I remember watching Alien for the first time as a teenager, I remember thinking like it just played as a very different film for me because she was not the Ripley that I'd met before. I'm like, oh, wow, this is interesting. Like, who is she? Like, what what's going on here in this ship? And as the, the story progressed and as the alien came aboard and as one person got picked off one person after the other, she slowly began to stand out. And her first emergence really was letting Dallas and um, Lambert and, you know, uh, face hugged King back onto the ship. And she was like, no, we can't do this. This is not right. This is not how things go. And then she was usurped by Ash, the science officer. But you, for the first time, see Ripley assert her, do- not her dominance, but her, her rank. Like, no, when they're off the ship, I'm the captain. That's how it goes. Um, And so by the end of the film, you see this character have completely come into her own, but not because she not because she wanted to, per se, but because she was forced to. She was forced to. She was she was she ended up being the last survivor of the Nostromo. She didn't want to be. That's just who she was. So what what do people do in extenuating circumstances? They try and live. They try and survive. And that's what she was at the end of Alien. She was a survivor. And there were points of the film and the journey of her character where Dallas is dead and you see her arguing with Parker or Parker arguing with her and she's trying to keep a semblance of peace and just a a way forward and Parker was pushing back on that like Parker had a different plan but she was the captain this is what was going on and she needed things to get done and it wasn't about her being badass she's the captain of the ship and that's what the captain does and maybe Parker didn't agree but too bad for him this is what we got what we have to do um and i remember that's one of my what's one of my favorite interactions of the film was her at that table talking with parker and lambert about what they're going to do next and they're freaked out and you could tell that ripley is too but she's not letting it overtake her whereas with parker and lambert it is overtaking them. They are almost right. paralyzed. And also by that so point, remember, Ripley was the one who was nearly murdered moments before that, right? Like like she she was the one who would have the most reason to be imminently afraid because she was, I mean, Ash was trying to kill her, you know, presumably 20 minutes, 10, 20 minutes before that interaction. And yet mm-hmm. you're totally right. She, she is the one who's able to like calm people down, give them a plan of action, coordinate things with this very single-minded idea that at this point they need to survive. And that they're going to, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, it's I, I. You know, we don't talk about Parker enough. I don't think. Um, I, I, Parker, yeah, and yeah. But one thing that you said that I thought was interesting. Yeah. That I think is worth note in terms of Ripley, even in the. There's a little bit of hint, I guess, at Ripley and Dallas having a bit of a connection. You never see it. You see her a little bit close to him. Lambert isn't involved with anyone, whereas with films. I would say more recent films, but other films of a lesser quality, one of those female characters would have been involved with a guy on the ship. Oh, yeah. That's how they would. But they weren't. They stood on their own. And there were some jokes. And, of course, you had that joke that Parker cracks at the table. Like, I'd like <laughs> to be eating something, something else, else, but right, right now I stick to food. Um, and you see Lambert kind of laugh at that. But that's really it. But it doesn't She's come across her like own character, or it doesn't come no, across like flirtatious like, even. It comes across like just like he's trying to like push her buttons yep. a little bit, right? Because mm-hmm, they're friends, mm-hmm. you know? 
it, it really it's funny right. that they're really people who like would be able to coexist i mean i actually really the reason why i'm mentioning parker again a is because i think he's one of the best parts of that movie and, and we don't give him enough credit for that i think Amen. Alpha is just an incredible actor but also because his dynamic with ripley in a lot of ways is the most interesting character work i think in the entire film the fact that this woman who's an officer is has this really um, intimate and yet kind of contentious relationship with the kind of blue collar engineering staff and that she becomes this kind of go-between this kind of bridge for them with the upper management um she's the one who goes to their sub deck when they're making repairs they they're the ones giving her shit and she gives them shit right back she's the one who calls out brett on his you know parroting um there's this wonderful honesty in that relationship and i think especially partly because he just lives longer but also because parker is so much more vocal than brett you really see that play out with parker and ripley a lot and i love that i love how honest it is i love how they respect each other enough to be assholes to each other and to be able to still coexist right and to call each other out of bullshit um and i think parker and that parker doesn't degrade her stereotypically because again lesser characters poorly written characters might go for the gender jugular you know like you bitch you this you that they don't do any of that there's so much respect there there might be some issues of I don't know, interpersonal working together issues, but it doesn't come out like, well, Ripley's this way because she's a woman or degrading her because she's a woman. There's none of that there. Or the Parker is treated a certain way because he's black. That's the other thing. We we literally never address that. But one of the principal characters who survives the longest in this film is a a person of color, you know? And it's it's just not a thing that's talked about. It doesn't play into the dynamics of anything. Um, And that's great because it shouldn't. But what I, I love how it's just it's just something that we just take for granted. But that is another big deal that one of the principal build actors in this movie was an African American in a science fiction movie, which wasn't like a huge thing at that time. And he's one of the last to die. He's one of the last to die. Um and he also is never reduced to a lot of the stereotypes that we see oh, totally. black characters being reduced to, right? He's never reduced to this uh like, you know, like sex fiend. He's never reduced to this like overly macho. I mean, that's the other thing too, is that this this or character wise cracking or the wise cracking sidekick. Yeah. Right, he's yeah, not like yeah. jive talking. Will Smith, yeah. Right, right, right. He's he's unre- he doesn't rely on those stereotypical traits that like I mean that was the era of black exploitation films. That was like a huge thing in cinema in the seventies. And his character does not rely on that at all. And what I love about it is that in um in his in in not going down that path, you're able to see so many more layers to him. Right, just like with Ripley, by not making her female first, you're able to see so many more nuances to that character. By not making Parker like minority first, you're able to see so many layers to him too. I love that. Yeah, uh, that's it's so right, and it's nothing we've ever talked about before. Ever. We've never talked about that. My, my favorite shirt that I have, my favorite alien shirt, is one that Micah and the boys made for me two years ago. And it has my favorite Parker line, which is, I just want to go home and party. And it, it, that, that's like on the front of the shirt. Because <laughs> um, he just has these great moments. Like, I, I mean, I, I love how simple that idea is, right? Like, that's right before everything starts to really, you know, hit the fan. And here's this guy who, like, he just wants to get paid and he just wants to get home. But he's also getting paid less. And that's mm-hmm. something that we also don't talk about. Yeah. yeah and I don't know if disparity. I'm pushing this episode in weird directions, but we also never discuss the fact that the engineering staff is actually paid less per unit than the people who aren't in that echelon even though yeah. without them They're the, the ship lower would class not, but Literally. the ship wouldn't fly right yeah that's yeah. what's amazing yeah. right they they are the ones who are actually working down there after it's it's been marooned temporarily on the surface of, of uh, akron like that they are so vital to the function of that ship and yet mm-hmm. they are deliberately withheld money from and they're putting up a, sh- a stink about that and they are taken seriously for doing that right like they, they are not they are not ignored right even though like they're like well you'll you'll, you'll get paid like you'll get it you'll get it you know what i mean they are still like it is clear that the crew understands that there's something fucked up about that Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, and that yeah. is really, really sociologically uh, an interesting thing for a film from 1979 to be doing. I think. And what I think is interesting to pivot it back around Ripley is what we see happening, certainly with Ripley and all of the characters, absolute equality.
Now, there might be disparity in how much people get made, how much people make, depending on what they're doing. But in terms of who they are and where we are as as a, a species, as a human species, at that point in that future, it's complete equality. So you don't have any all of the trappings that you see in even lesser sci-fi films um, or or films made are not at play there because at that point in who we are, there might be fucked up things about the world or earth or whatever, but all of those trappings about gender and race, they appear to be a non-issue. And that is revolutionary. It is because that was already something that had been done slightly differently, of course, in Star Trek. But in Star Trek, the way it's done is so different because in Star Trek, the absence of those social differences and of those gender norms and things like that is a that is a theme, right? Mm -hmm. That they're past that, that they they moved into the future where anybody can be a leader and anybody can do. In Alien, it's just not even on the table. It is an actual post-gender, post-color world where like everybody is actually treated equally. Although Mm -hmm. class is obviously a huge thing still um and I, I think that's that's really a fascinating angle into this into this movie that we don't really talk about very much it's also funny i, I feel like part of it um and and that some of this is in the rinsler book you know uh sigourney weaver's first interpretations of the script were quote that it's a very bleak picture where people don't relate to each other at all um and she also says that uh i felt the role was going to be a tough one all the characters and relationships in the film were written very loosely you can tell walter hill's influence he writes so sparsely because so sparely because he expects you to improvise it was a very skeletal script Uh, i read the script and i didn't really care that much for it and i think what she's getting at there is that on paper these characters are really not giving you very much it really depends on the interplay of the actors in the space together and so in some ways by withholding a lot of that by not showing by not telling very much and allowing them to show uh that like freedom was maybe what led to this really uh open atmosphere where people weren't so reliant on tropes and stereotypes However, I, I do think, think that there's something to what she said in terms of the bleak. So in the beginning, the, they're, they're all awakened. You see the cryotubes come up and they're up and they're eating. It doesn't feel like as much as the ship feels comforting, they don't seem like happy people. They seem like, oh, another day. Very blue collar, like they're working in a factory and this is what they got to do. And they're just trying to get home to see their family before they go out another time. That's what it feels like. It has that that sense of, and I'll probably get shit for this, but I don't give a fuck. Um, that, <laughs> um, <laughs> like it has this sense that capitalism is still at play that these people who probably yeah, the other getting paid, but probably not much that they're just, it's still grinding people into the ground. And these truckers in space are no different than anyone else who are not involved in the conglomerates or the company or whatever. And so you have these people waking up like, where are we? Are we home yet? No, we're not home. Oh my God. Like now what do we have to do? Like they just want to get home. They just want to see their family. They just want to get paid. Cause literally like, what they do is they tow yeah. shit. They're a fucking tow truck. Like they're just yeah. driving a tow truck across expanses of space while they're in yeah. hypersleep. Like they're like loading yeah. things up. They're getting it going. They're hitching it up and then they're like charting their coordinates and then they're just going home right mm-hmm. like that is like the ultimate sort of like you know low to medium skilled trade that is like an honest living but it is not something that is like you know an extraordinary adventure like they're not in star trek these people are mm-hmm. just doing a job a job that millions of people do that is valiant and totally necessary but it's not it's not this sort of you know anything could happen poetic adventure it's it's they're making a living and they're woken up before they get home and they're like what the fuck right yeah yeah. And then, of course, it's their like, first concern is, are we going to get paid for this? Because like, otherwise, why am I working overtime now, essentially, basically? Right? Yeah, well, and it's the same conversation. I mean, I, you don't work in this environment, maybe you used to, but as someone who's lived a life in retail where you're like, it's grinding, it's taxing. Can you stay later? Oh, I don't want to, but I, I might need the money. Or, oh, this is going on. Oh, we got to do this. Oh, my God, why? Like, it's that environment like this company is taking us for as much as possible and giving the least amount. Right. It's not all of capitalism, but that is the worst arm of capitalism in terms of big companies with lots of money squeezing it out of the lower class. And that's what these people feel like, the lower class. Totally. And it's also not so much even blue collar. Well, and I think it's also amplified by the fact that the actors in general are not young. Right? That's something else that we've yeah. talked about in this is that they, one of the one of the many, many, many refreshing aspects of the characters in this movie are the a that they're mostly character actors, but also that they're not like young heartthrobs. Like they're they're all over the place in age, gender, experience. Um, you know, um, 
their racial or you know ethnic backgrounds like they're kind of all over the place they're like a real genuine sampling of people yes and um and because of that like the people who are like senior on the ship like dallas dallas doesn't look like he gets paid a lot of money he's like scruffy mm-hmm. he's kind of and he miserable. looks over it too you know he's he done just seems... like he didn't shave yeah. he's just he's just like ready to get home and get on his next i mean he is ready to get on his next assignment because he needs mm-hmm. the money because he's presumably mm-hmm. sending it home to put his kid through school or something like mm-hmm. he's just doing he's doing his living and he's not glorified by it like the trappings of this capitalist environment are not paying off for him and that's mm-hmm. the way it is too right if you're in a trucking company on on earth and the, the earth that we live on um you know you can like work your way through the ranks but like at the end of the day if you're like dispatching trucks or helping with logistics or anything you're not being you know ferried around on private jets and whining and dining people like you're still working hard you know um and i think that's very uh like realistic and i think that it really plays into these characters but it also points out something else about ripley that we don't talk about very much which is how comparatively young she was and how inexperienced she was not just as a character but um as an actress right well she was almost 30 so there's that she was 29 when she got that role so she but she fits the to me she fits i think she seems well i mean i guess if you go to aliens she had she had a daughter so but in some ways she was a little bit of a career woman as much as a career as you can have in a conglomerate job that she had yeah she was a flight officer but it wasn't glamorous it wasn't like she was you know the head of a a colony or whatever she was doing very they're all grunts essentially um and even like sigourney weaver is pretty but she's not like blonde haired blue eyed oh my god you know she's very she's a very unique beauty and that's why also that's also why she worked really well in that role Right, she was not an ingenue, no matter how you spin no. it. I mean, all, and, and that's something that people talk about all the time with her casting process. The you know very famous story about her coming in with what she called her hooker, her hooker boots on, being six feet tall and being kind of overwhelming. Right, she has that very kind of austere, uh, like unique look to her that is uh, is very uh, uh, it's almost androgynous in some ways, right? Because she's she's tall and she has a lot of these kind of masculine features, but she's also like you said, very kind of you know in some ways conventionally a beautiful woman. It's a really interesting mixture of just visual cues that she gives off, I think, too. And I feel like that's part of why she's so uh, iconic and another reason why she was such an interesting casting choice, right? I mean, she not only was she, like, unproven, I mean, she, she wasn't, you know, a, a particularly young as an actress, but in terms of her experience, like, she had done stage work and she was just out of Yale and she was kind of making it into business. And she also uh, was not, like, on a fast track to success. Like, this was her first hit. This was, this was where she kind of made a splash for the first time. So she was kind of an unproven property. Uh, and I feel like it was... It was also just interesting that in the midst of all these very established character actors, they found this this you know kind of young startup that they believed so strongly in. And Ridley Scott has said this that his intuition was so strong for her that they you know rewrote the part, switched the pronouns around, they made it for her. Uh, they d- totally like you know left everything uh, up in the air and and redid the movie at, conceptually with a female lead and shot it with this woman who was not traditionally an ingenue kind of like leading lady look, who was not uh, a, a known name she wasn't a bankable star and she was uh like basically unproven in film she was not a film actress at that point in any real way and the gamble that that meant and also again Ridley Scott who was also unproven making a second movie you know making this movie as somebody who kind of like Sigourney Weaver wasn't like super young but in terms of that field she was he was just starting out right as a Mm -hmm. filmmaker um and seeing something and having that intuitive sense to take a jump to take a leap and fox to give them all the credit going with it and well and, and right? they didn't for a little bit they pushed but back they against her for did, a bit though. and, and that, that's true and that is an extraordinary thing for a major hollywood studio to do to mm-hmm. take that kind of i mean that's crazy it is it, it's it's a testament to so much i mean yeah that's, i'm trying to like figure out how to have this discussion because there was also a lot happening um sociologically at the time in the world there was a lot of uh, reactions happening to so many things, whether it's the Vietnam War or the, which was at its end by that point, or um, the women's movement, which was roaring um, at that point as well, like women leaving the home and being more independent and not feeling like they need men or they need a man to live in the world, essentially. Um, and I don't know if that informed any of those things. And I don't even think it mattered because what we were introduced to was pure character because really at the end of the day, and I think this is one of the brilliance of who Ripley is, not just an alien, but certainly alien that we're talking about. The brilliance of who she is is because at the end of the day, when you're in a position where your life is threatened, you're not going to matter who's around you. 
you're going to matter. Can you work together to get out of the situation that you're in? And it doesn't matter if they're a woman or black or white or Asian or gay or straight. It will not matter. All of those trappings fall away. And I think that's probably why she is so um, revered because of her character. Because at the end of the day, we need a leader. And she stepped up and she was that leader. And, and at the end of Alien, it was only herself. She only had herself to save. And what do you do? And she, she was presented and she was terrified. She was terrified. Um, she didn't know where this thing was. And then she ran into it and then she had to go back and she had to do all these things and try and undo things that she did, like the, the final countdown, the self-destruct. And she was angry. She was pissed. And so when she's running away from that, she's angry that she can't do it. And she, and she feels like maybe she'll end up dying on the ship or what. Um, she doesn't really know. Um, but her strength of character got her through that. And I would imagine even if we had a discussion with Ripley, if she was here with us, she would be like, I just did what I, you know, it's like when you talk to someone and you're like, you're calling them a hero and they're like, I just did what I felt like was right. That's, I think that's how Ripley would respond. She wouldn't be like, well, wouldn't you go after your cat? You wouldn't want to leave in there, would you? Like, he doesn't deserve that. Um, well, wouldn't everyone try and get into the escape vehicle? Wouldn't everyone try and, you know, follow procedure? I, I really think that's how she would act. She wouldn't, in her eyes, she wouldn't see herself as different than anyone else. Right. And that's also her brilliance. Totally. But what's interesting with Ripley and, and with people who say that is that the action that they end up taking is the action that we all think we would take. But not everybody can do that, right? Not everybody Absolutely. has that incredible Absolutely fortitude. True. And she doesn't. She's never proud of it. And she's never, I mean, she's reluctant in some ways, you know, to, to be that, I think. She she doesn't want to be this heroic character, but she kind of accidentally keeps getting thrust into those situations. It's also, so you know, I think an issue with Aliens as a movie a little bit, especially with the special edition of it, is that it, it provides the additional um, anchor to Earth of, of her daughter, the, the fact that like that sh while she's out there on this mission in space, that she is uh, you know basically doing this to send money back home to, to raise Amanda, and that that would be like an additional inspiration for her to be able to to get off the ship. But what's great about Alien, before you're presented with any of that, is that it's so elemental. The reason she's fighting so hard is just to live. It's just to get off the ship, to get oh, the boy. fucking alien dead, and to make it. And it is such a simple, simple thing. And again, just like the character being very simple, it allows room for nuance and for subjectivity and for us to like put our own thoughts and our own uh, you know, uh, suppositions into it and to mm -hmm. imagine what we would do and if we would be that capable. And, and of course, like most of us wouldn't. I mean, it's such an extraordinary And you see that in the film. Yeah. Lambert's paralyzed. She's paralyzed. Right. She's in tears. And it's totally She's... understandable, right? And there would be men like that too. Like you could even see that paralyzed fear in... Parker's eyes. Parker doesn't really know what to do until Ripley's like, come on, let's do it. Let's right. go. This is going to work. Let's do it. She has to sort of pep talk him, all of them, like, no, this is, this is how it's going to happen, and this is what we need to do. And without her... I don't think they would. I mean, obviously, unfortunately, I don't think that they were. They didn't. They didn't survive, obviously. But even to get to the point that they <laughs> spoiler alert, whatever. Um, <laughs> but they weren't going to even get to the point that they got to without Ripley, without her. Um, and even when they get answers from Ash, who restarts him? Who has that training? Ripley does. Yeah, she's she's tasked with that information, with that training to know. Maybe she knows about androids. It's obviously she obvious that she did, but she didn't know Ash was an android. But when she finds that out, she's like, okay, no, we need information from him. And so what do we have to do? We have to turn him on. And you could tell that Parker didn't even want her to do that, but she right. knew she had to. Right. She knew she had to get information. And then that's when you find out that the company didn't care for them. Right. And I, also that's something that I think that we should take into account when we talk about Ripley is that by the end of the film, before Parker and Lambert are killed, they are living with the realization that – the company doesn't give a shit. And so that's it's that's another alien on that ship with them. As much as Ash, as much as the creature. You don't matter to anyone. And Ripley, when she ends up alone, she knows she doesn't matter to 
anyone in charge, anyone in charge of the mission. They want, they want that thing more than they want her. That's a really horrible place to be. And par- Lambert knew that too, uh, by that point. And she was just this teary eyed mess. I would, I might be that same way too, to be honest with you. I might just be like, what are we going to do? I mean, like, could you I imagine like, how, how fucking terrifying is that? I mean, there, there's so many layers of fear to it, but again, what's special about Ripley is that she's not immune to that fear. And that's something that I feel like is very important that we see her being afraid. We see yes. her being angry. We see her being emotional. She's not some sort of an automaton. She's not, you know, Jason Statham shooting helicopters or something like she, mm-hmm. she is very afraid and she's also kind of incapable, right? She's not a mercenary. She's not equipped for this. She has no idea what's going on. She's just having to think on her feet and keep moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is something that makes her, I think, very believable. The fact that she's not um, some sort of superhuman. Like, she's just one of us, but she's like the best of us, right? And an underrated, uh, or a scene that's not talked about a lot, but it's actually very visually iconic, is when she goes into the mother, into the room where mother is, and she's talking, and it's quiet, and all you see is her responding with her eyes about the information, and she's getting upset and angry at the same time. She's feeling helpless, and it's all playing out visually. This character, this woman, who is now captain of the ship, wants answers, and she's not getting the answers she expected. Right. And she's you see that just overtake her, and she leaves that well. Obviously, Ash shows up in that room with her, but then eventually she leaves that room with that knowledge, and it's almost like she doesn't even know what to say. She doesn't even know what to say, and all of that transpires visually in her face, and it is some brilliant acting on the part of Sigourney Weaver. It truly is, and and I and that's something that I feel like it's difficult because, it, at least for me personally, I, I have such a hard time separating Ripley from Sigourney Weaver just because like they're it's me so too. iconic and, and we've known yes. her in that for so long, and obviously yeah. we've seen her in a million other movies and she's always great, but but part of me feels like, and it's not true, but part of me feels like when I don't think about it, that Sigourney Weaver wasn't acting as Ripley, that that's just who she is. When in reality, of course, it's a character that she's playing, but it but I think feels she probably so... brought some of her own. Oh, sure, she brought some of her own. To but it. just like she was she's... saying, like it was it was it was a thinly sketched thing in the script, and she brought a lot of herself to it. But it mm-hmm. is still a character. Like she's making decisions as an actress with how she's going mm-hmm. to play this character, and she is deciding to play it with those very subtle gradations. To use her eyes a lot, to um, to use her physicality a lot, to use her anger. Right, like these things that um, in the script read almost like sometimes corny science fiction tropes from the 50s and 60s, she brings this gravitas to it and this very serious uh, aspect, you know? Um, And I think that a lot of that was her training, but a lot of it is just her, is her ability to get deeper into the character than a lot of other actresses could. Um, It's just just really, I think, uh, pretty astounding what she was able to do with that role. Yeah, it's, it is, it's, I mean, it's still, yeah, I can't even, she is the most impactful character I have seen in a film to me personally. I mean, there's a lot of other films that I love for varying different reasons and they touch me in very different ways and move me and change me and push me to be better. But Ripley is a character that I cannot even put into words how important she is to me, not just personally, but just where she she sits in in the stratosphere, in the ether, in the genre of science fiction, how important she is, how important she still is. Um, and just her foundation in Alien. I mean, she that was her trial by fire. And of course, we find out that she goes through more and, and she goes through more. Um, but yeah, I, yeah. But again, I, it's, I'm it's almost that, speechless. It's a very subtle attention to character arc that Sigourney Weaver brought to that character over time. And a part of it's, got, you know, Guyler and Hill being sort of a common thread through the first three films. But mm-hmm. part of it is just is Sigourney Weaver and the evolution of her as an actress, the visual evolution of her as she grew older as this character, as time passed. And you saw her go from being this almost girl in the first movie to being a, a really commanding presence, right? Mm-hmm. And you see that happening, you know, throughout Aliens where she's kind of an outsider and she's brought in and reluctantly kind of assumes control. And then into Alien, where she's surrounded by these, you know, like, uh, these, like, alpha males, and she she doesn't give a fuck. Like, she is is totally nonplussed by it, right? That's one thing that I think that is totally worth mentioning, if you think about, and we haven't even discussed it, obviously, we're talking about Ripley in the context of Alien, but if you talk about her in the context of Aliens, when she's emerged from that journey, she's emerged from the 57 years of hypersleep, she didn't give a fuck about anybody. Like, she has people come in there, she has the, you know, Burke, and she has Gorman, and she's like, yeah, what about it? Like she is done. She is, she, there's no scruples with her. And she's like, yeah, I got to get going. I got to go to work. Like, and I love that, that veil for her, she's been through so much and maybe it's just PTSD or maybe she really doesn't give a fuck, but it's gone. And her performance of that 
is incredible. It's so easy for her. Like it's just, it's all past her. But also another interesting thing as well, as we discuss her character in Aliens a little bit, they don't approach Ripley. There's still no stereotypical way that even Burke and Carter, oh, hi, how are you doing? Do you need rest? There's none of that. They approach her as an equal. They as approach her as we need, we'd like to talk to you. We've lost contact, blah, 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 blah. They don't even, they don't patronize her at all. Even though they might, you know, the company might be trying to make her seem like she's crazy, no one patronize her, not just as a person, but as a woman or anything else. And she's commanding, and they realize that right away. And you can even see right away with Burke and with Gorman, they're a little bit, or a lot of it, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Intimidated? When you Intimidated by her, yeah, absolutely. Totally. Um, and, and their body language, over. you know, says it all. Yep. Um, Burke is an interesting case, I think, because, you know, he, he's obviously playing her, um, but there does seem to be something real in his approach to her in the beginning, which is that he, he is aware mm-hmm. of what she's been able to do mm-hmm. and is a little afraid of that. Yeah. Uh, and whereas, and you know, Gorman is just totally out of his element, but, but regardless, like they both know that they're in the presence of kind of a legendary person, right? And even when she's in that debriefing room with the Wayland yutani executives, she, who's the one standing up? Ripley, right? Yep. She's yep. not sitting down under a single light bulb like it's an interrogation. She is standing in the front of the room, all six feet of her, right? Waving papers around, not giving any, not, not relenting at all with the knowledge from alien that you people didn't even think i was worth it you people knowing that we know that she knows that she read a message that said all priorities rescinded crew expendable so this expendable this expendable woman is now standing in front of you saying bullshit and she doesn't have any fear because she knows she doesn't mean anything so she has nothing to lose and you know i mean again even you know i think it's a, a famous a famous scene from aliens is while ripley is standing in front of the Wayland Yutani brass, essentially, um, and she knows what's happening. She, you know, there's a there's a moment where we all know what's happening. They're trying to make her seem like she's crazy, and they're angry that she lost the money, lots of money, lots and lots of money, and she realizes that they're trying to sort of push her into this box of crazy lady, crazy lady. Um, these things don't exist, and whatever. She becomes fully aware of that, um, but no one intimidates her. Not the woman who's talking to her. Not Van Leeuwen. No one intimidates her because she realizes she has nothing to lose. And she actually and puts is, them down, right? Like when yeah, she says yeah. that IQs drop sharply while I was gone, right? Like yeah, that's that's yeah. she 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 is saying like, wake up, idiots! Like, what do you want me to do? Like, what what do I have to gain by lying to you about this? Why do you mm-hmm. think I would have blown up this ship? Like, what, do you think that this is just fun to me? Like, no, of course not. And she never backs down. And that's something that's an amazing quality. And you see that the very first time, like you mentioned earlier, when she doesn't let them back on the ship. That is something that, although it's funny when you look at it in retrospect. She was the one going by the book. Like she was the one kind of on the company's side with that, right? She was like literally just abiding mm-hmm. by the manual. Um, but she was abiding by the manual, not out of interest for the company, but out of interest for the well-being of the people on the ship, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and and having the gall and the strength to make that kind of a decision. When that is something that I would probably not have done. I would not have mm-hmm. been able to, I think. Especially yeah. not only the, with the personal concern, especially for Kane, but for the others too, but also when like the science officer is, is, is telling you to like let them back on the ship and when you're not the one who has been in control this entire time like until right now and all of a sudden you're tasked with this responsibility as like the youngest person on that mission um that that is a, that is a situation where i as a white male would have a very hard time standing up for myself and here and again it's not even mentioned as a as a, an additional layer and it doesn't have to be but she was a woman right she was a young woman who was not used to being the first in command and was only in a substitute position being told by an older white man science officer that she was doing something wrong and an older white man who was the you know the actual leader of the ship who was outside trapped telling her to let the other guy who was a white man who was in charge just below him to come inside again like that there was a lot going on in terms of 
dynamics in that in that situation. And she very honestly and very quietly and with tremendous resolve says, I can't let that happen, right? She's not mm-hmm. being mean. She's not going out of her way to rub it in anybody's face. She's not having to be overly defensive. She's saying, we both know that this is for the best for the well-being of the ship. This is the way that this mission is supposed to work. We're following protocol by checking out this distress signal. We have to be following mm-hmm. protocol by letting not by not letting contaminants back on the ship. Yeah. And of course, this could be tasked to the writers, Dan O'Bannon and Gather and Hill. But Ripley, after the thing comes out of Kane and is it's aboard the ship and it's larger and it's killing people, she could have said, yeah, you let it aboard. You you broke protocol. You let this thing aboard. It's unfortunate what happened to Kane, but we could have averted all of this. But no, you wanted to bring him on board and you knew we shouldn't have. She didn't go into any of that. And she could have. She could have gone into she, that. She says she, it once, but she doesn't say it in like an I told you so way at all. Well, she says that to, to Ash, right. like, and you let it right. aboard. Right. And that's all she says. And it's just an observation, right? And, yeah. and it's, yeah. also, it's also a, a great character moment because it's letting us know that she's aware that something's going on, right? Mm-hmm. She's getting mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. you're right, but she never lords it over anybody. And she would have every right in the world to and every lesser written character in hollywood would have had a scene like that they would they would have had a like big i told you so moment for Mm -hmm. vindication for the audience too as a moment of catharsis because we want that as an audience right we want our heroes to be vindicated a huge issue that i have and i'm sure you have and every person who's ever watched a movie has is when you when you introduce the conflict for the hero which is like a very common storytelling device right like i'm always i can't wait for that to be over with because i just want resolution like i just want things to Mm -hmm. be okay again you know Mm-hmm. And even though that's always the best part of the movie, because that's when things get interesting, there's always something tugging at me saying like, oh, I really want this to be over with because I want things to go back to being safe, to being okay. Mm-hmm. And usually that comes in the form of a big eureka moment where everybody realizes that the hero was right all along and they're praised for it or something good comes of it. But in this movie, there's never that cathartic moment. And even, I mean, even the moment that should have been cathartic, blowing the ship up is a mistake. She's trying to stop it from happening after she already starts it. We don't even get that that right it mm-hmm. ends up being something that she regretted and and then and then on top of that it was on the fucking escape ship anyway so so she didn't even get the vindication of getting to the narcissus unscathed right like there's yeah. never that that release in alien and that dynamic is so subtle, but it's great because it makes it feel like it's really lived in. It makes it feel like, you know, a lot of movies, you can see the strings being pulled. You can see the marionette. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Movies often have fascinating plot structures that are fun to watch unwind. Christopher Nolan's a great example of this. I feel like his movies usually have a very clear structure to them, but they're brilliant. And the structures are really interesting. And it's fun seeing that play out. Alien structure is very emergent as it goes on. It's very hard to tell where it's going next. And when you think you've finally got like a pulse on it it goes in a different direction and a fourth act comes up and you're like oh my god this movie is not even what i expected it to be mm-hmm. um and a lot of that is because we don't get that payoff it's always being pushed and we don't have that moment where ripley gets to uh become like the stereotypical hero she is because she's not she's a survivor yep. she becomes a hero yep. after alien yeah yeah and i think about her not having that moment of i told you so and I think about life in terms of we all either whether it's friends or family and we we see things happening. They're telling us about things that are happening and we're all we might say it to them like we wouldn't do this or uh, mm-hmm, this looks like a red flag to us. Um, and some people in certain situations would be like, yeah, who said that? Who told you that? I did. Did you listen? No. But sometimes we don't have that pleasure or whether it's a pleasure or not. We don't have that opportunity because we're just called to love them or to survive or to we're human and humans make mistakes and we all have to be free to make our own mistakes. And I think that's that shows a leader. That's what that shows, because that's what a leader would do. A leader wouldn't get petty and be like, because what's that really going to do? What would that have gained them if Ripley would have taken a moment to say, well, I told you, but you didn't want to listen to me. Right, right. That's not what it a leader does. It would not does. have been for them in the movie. It would have been for us as an audience. And we are mm-hmm. treated as a smart enough audience to not need yes. that to require our attention, right? Yeah. And yeah. that is one of those very subtle writing things in Alien that is just so sophisticated, is that it allows us to experience it and not to be told it. And that's just, that's that's incredible, that level of trust, yep. you know? Yep. It just, again, points back to the evidence of how believable these characters are, that they're intensely flawed, but 
they're not dumb either. They're very smart. We are one of them. They feel like one of us for a reason. They all feel like Ripley feels like one of us for a reason because they're playing to our strengths as people. They're playing to our intelligence as an audience and as a crew member also aboard that ship with them. And that's why that film is that film in many ways because of who they are, because we were all aboard that ship with them, because we were also a survivor with Ripley and the narcissist. And it's, it's really brilliant. And for me as a writer, it only points back to this is how you write good characters. This is how you write good characters. You, you know, you make the, you don't only, you don't only make the characters smart. It's not about being so much witty. It's about being smart. And it's not so much about also being smart. It's about being human. And sometimes we break as humans. Sometimes we get paralyzed. Sometimes we find our strength. Sometimes we plow through it. Sometimes we survive. And we had all of those different types of characters at play in Alien. And um, sometimes our curiosity gets us in trouble, a la Kane. He didn't know, and he fell into a trap. Um, and then you have other characters like, I don't know if we should do this, like Lambert. You know, we saw, you see Lambert in the beginning of Alien. I don't know. She has a bad feeling about it. Right, she the, just the does. The seeds are planted early on, right? And the seeds are planted with Kane. Kane's the first one to wake up. The seeds are there from mm-hmm. Kane too, right? Oh, that, totally. That, that, he wants to go out and, and search. He wants, and she's to know like, why they got, he wants to know why they woke up. Like he's the one yep. who's asking that question, right? And his curiosity killed him, essentially. <laughs> right. I mean, it wasn't really his fault per se. He didn't know, but that's why you, he wasn't stupid for it. No, it, wasn't it was part of his character. It, it was, was a, part it was of his a character. character trait. And, and again, and I know that Orem and Covenant is a, is a, is, is a character who's kind of divisive, but to me, although his character was stupid, uh, like it was fitting because the seeds of those actions that he took later in the film were planted in the beginning of the movie too. So, so, well, no, so, so, so I'm not saying that he's an alien level character cause he's not, but I'm saying that, uh, there, there are ways to do it. I think, um, right and to do it wrong and I, and I think yeah. Orem is an example of of like the writers knew what they were doing with him like it wasn't a totally like out of nowhere action for him to look into the egg but it was playing into this whole notion of his like issues with blind faith and with not having good leadership qualities etc oh totally so it was consistent actually, r- whether or not you liked it you know I don't think Orem looking into that egg itself by itself was a, a negative thing um, it makes sense if they're the first people to encounter this species what killed that was the build up to that. Mm-hmm. He shouldn't by that point trusted this android to take him down to this basement to go look at whatever. He shouldn't have trusted it. But whatever. Whatever. That's a Yeah, conversation I, I mean I I have, I have a different opinion on it, but we got we, some we, criticism we recently. We had some criticism recently that I want to just address that every time we talk about the prequels, someone says that they hate it. No one says that they hate the they hate the prequels on the show. No one's ever has said that. We've always had very nuanced, heartfelt, intelligent conversations. Some of us love the film more than others, like you. Um, and you you're always going to hear a different perspective. You'll always hear someone say, oh, "I don't know, I'm not sure." That's just a, how it goes as a discussion. It's just true, and, and, and it's important to remember too. You know, for people who point out that um, that we don't always necessarily come across rosy on the prequels. That uh, in, in the past we we've gotten uh, like very serious hate mail for for being too positive on the prequels, and indeed mm-hmm. we have negative reviews on iTunes that say we're a love fest for the prequels. So, like at the end of the day, I think part of this is you kind of hear what you listen for, mm-hmm. um, and I think we all do that. We all kind of want a confirmation bias to be fulfilled um and uh and i think that it's difficult to at the end of the day like th- this is a podcast of friends talking about about movies that we love like this mm-hmm. and so we're, we're going to have an honest conversation and we're not going to tailor it for any specific agenda um but if i do have an agenda it is that it is important to always look for things to love in movies before we look for things to hate in them because i think it's more valid to approach things from a, a, a natural curiosity about what draws people to them even and, if right? that might not be how you experience the film sometimes in film like me like with covenant like with prometheus what i did not like from those films stood out for me right away right because what i loved about them was harder to find because right it, it was just it was clouded so that some that but you've done the hard takes, work to your credit yes, since it does, then of, it does of, take hard work and, and it, it um, is hard work and, and i really can't wait for us to be able to do prometheus shows which we will because that is a movie yeah, that we have I, a whole series i really out, don't people. like i really yeah. don't like prometheus i don't like I, it either i can't watch it i really want to i very deeply want I, to i don't i don't well, I mean, I, I guess I you do. A bitch. I guess I, I do. Uh, I guess I do want to really love it. Um, but there's nothing there. There are plenty of things to love about Prometheus. Plenty of things, and we'll get into that. We have a series planned out. We're, hopefully, we'll have some special guests on the show. But um, yeah, we can wrap this episode and 
not get too far into Prometheus and the prequels. But I, I do think it's important to just to say for the record, you're not always going to hear what you want to hear. You're not always sometimes sometimes people attack movies that I love on a regular basis. You just got to live with it and don't perceive it as an attack. Perceive it as a discussion. Yeah. And maybe through discussion, I love there are things about Covenant that I love way more than I used to because of our conversations, because of who we are, because of our partnership. And it's fun to have an evolving relationship with the movies that we consume, right? It's it's, it's an enjoyable pro- journey, I think. And I would say, Absolutely. lastly, before we get back to Ripley and rap, that um, if you do find things that you feel like are coming across, like we have a soapbox or an agenda or something or something like that, uh, like write into the show and give us your opinions on things and and, and join the conversation. Because or maybe come will, on the show, or come on the show, bring it <laughs> because bring it's, it. it's fun to talk about that stuff. And yeah. I, we have no ego. Like this is this is about this is about the love of the movies, and that's that's first and foremost. Going back to Ripley, though, and going back to character motivations, what uh, what I think is great is that the characters don't travel a huge distance, but they travel enough that they all have a little bit of growth. So like what you're saying with Lambert, in the beginning, she's the skeptical one. She's the one who has that bad feeling that eventually kind of mutates into into real terror, right? Um, in the beginning, Parker, another, you know, I, I feel like I keep bringing him up and maybe we should do a whole Parker show or something at one point. Um, I feel like one of the great things about Parker is that he similarly, because he's kind of an outsider, because he's not really in the hierarchy of the company, is saying, for example, why don't you just freeze him, right? Like he, he gets it. He's saying like, what are, what are we doing? Just do the safe thing. Um, like don't try to preserve the, the mission. You know, don't, don't try to like make the maximum return on the investment. We got to get home, freeze Kane, we'll fear what to do with him, which of course the company probably would have actually loved knowing what we know about them now. They would have loved to have a cryogenically preserved, you know, a xenomorph. But within the context of the movie, Parker as an outsider and as somebody who was not typically listened to was just very clearly saying out loud what all of us were thinking, right? Um, and being kind of ignored, not even being responded to, just being kind of ignored. Uh, and, and I think that's really powerful. And that's what Ripley goes through over and over and over again. Is she's making a very obvious judgment call, but not being afraid to say it and being for various reasons, not taken seriously until it is a matter of real life and death. And finally, she's able to. And again, going back to Parker for probably the last time in this episode, uh, I feel like it is a real testament to his character that there's no gender machismo thing going on when he does relent to her. And when, when he's so fired up and angry, but it's not, has nothing to do with the fact that this woman is telling him what to do. Like as soon as basically she like yells at him, gets him to chill out, he is totally on board. And he's like, okay, you're right. I'm being an idiot. There's a humility there. And these characters, they all have that, right? These characters are not one dimensional um, stand-ins for ideas or for expectations. They're, they're very nuanced. And they listen to each other. And that is something that I think is really cool. You get the sense that they listen to each other. Mm-hmm. And just like we were saying with Ripley. And they care about each other. They care about each other, but they're also responsive to each other. You see, like with Ripley, um, you know, uh, when she doesn't get that big, like, payoff of being able to say, I told you so. Like, that, that is because she is not aware of us as an audience. She is aware of the people that she's on that ship with. She's aware of that situation. I think a lot of movies, whether they realize it or not, kind of accidentally start addressing us through the fourth wall a little bit in that they start they start kind of uh, broadcasting what's going on. They start being too... I mean, there's like no exposition in Alien at all. There's like no moment where they're like, this is the... You, you get that one title card that's overlaid in the beginning that tells you what the Nostromo is and what it weighs and all these things. Um, and then after that, basically we're just kind of experiencing the movie as it unfolds. There's no like flashbacks. There's no narration and voiceover there's no like hang on let's like explore this world there's no let's take a you know a high level overview of the dynamics of the company this is welcome to the future this is what it's like this is what's going on it's just it's completely we're just it's just unfolding like a documentary before our eyes that it's not even edited together right um and that subtlety structurally is really um amazing and it carries over to the characters and then it feels like the characters are basically just there for each other they're just interacting as characters in a movie and we are just we just happen to be lucky enough to be able to watch it happen and that's why i don't think I will ever get, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but that's one of the main reasons why I will never get tired of that movie because it, I feel completely unmanipulated, even though I am, even though it's a haunted house movie, even though it is something that is very carefully structured to make me fucking terrified and to gross me out and to creep me out, uh, that I never see those machinations going on. It feels mm-hmm. like I'm watching something that really happened. Mm-hmm. And that is an amazing gift. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you said it really. I mean, that's nail on the head. It doesn't feel like manipulation. And that's a, that's the sign of a really good story and a really yeah. good writer yeah. or, or, or set of writers. It's, it's phenomenal. Wanna wrap well, it? yeah. 
We're going to revisit well, Ripley. So we are going to revisit Ripley in a different context. Um, that will be in our next episode. Uh, so stay tuned. Thank you guys for listening so much. Um, we will talk to you on the other side and uh, I'll tell you about uh, what's to come. Yeah. And I'll see you in a few days, my friend. Yeah, that's right. Bye. For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.